0: All right, so when it came time for me to choose a college or a university to attend, uh, my list was pretty short initially. I I really had kind of zeroed in and focused on Texas Tech and Baylor. And and the reason for that was the majority of my family had gone to Texas Tech, and the majority of my friends were going to Baylor. And so that's kind of where I logically assumed I would go. And so I went and visited those campuses, and they were the two that I really kind of had focused in on, I never even considered, not even once, anything like Texas A&M, anything like University of Texas, because as early as I could walk, I was already doing this, right? Even today, it's just instinctive. I can't, I can't do it any other direction. But that's the way I was taught, right? I mean, hey, train a child in the way they should go. And so that's kind of what my upbringing taught me. But I was focused in on Texas Tech, I was focused in on Baylor, I went and visited those schools. Um, I had some jokes about both of them today, but I'm gonna hold off. For obvious reasons, and um, I'm just trying to play nice a little bit this morning, guys. But but I went to visit them, and when I went to visit, I could just tell that it wasn't the right fit. Right, good schools, good people, but just not the same fit for me. So I kind of kept my options open, and one of the schools that kept coming up for discussion was the University of Oklahoma. It's where my grandfather had gone, and he was a major influence in my life. And I thought, well, I'd like to at least go see it and and see where my grandfather went to school, and, and so I kind of put it on the list, so to speak. But I will tell you, even then it was hard for me to truly consider, because I'm not sure if you're aware of this, but Texans have some stereotypes associated with Oklahoma, right? And so I couldn't quite picture, cause for me, when I thought of Oklahoma, I just thought of overalls and tumbleweeds, you know, and I was trying to picture some form of a collegiate experience in that sort of setting, uh, but I wanted to go see it. And so when I went to go see it, it shattered some of those stereotypes. It was a beautiful glorious campus. And, and I quickly fell in love, and, and that's where I decided to go to school. And when I got there, I realized kind of the reverse stereotypes, right, and how Oklahomans felt about that university. Very, very high expectations and ideals associated with the university. They loved the campus. They loved the football program. Academically, it was known as the Harvard of the South. Um, maybe not the South, but at least the Harvard of Oklahoma. And <laughs> And so, you know, there was a lot of credibility that went with the, with the institution. And so I got in there and I think the biggest hesitation that my family felt was the opportunities I was gonna have to, to make friends because I didn't know anybody. Uh, I had one high school friend that was going to the university as well, but she and I had gone to different high schools and it didn't really seem like our paths were gonna cross all that much. And so my mom and my older sister in particular kept encouraging me to join a fraternity. They had, they had done the whole sorority thing, they had benefited from that. Um, but, but there was a stereotype that was associated with fraternities, and I was new in my faith, and again, I kind of was like, I, I don't know if that's going to be a good fit for me. And uh, so I wasn't really open to it, but I remember the first time I moved in, first week in there, uh, some friends, or not friends, some new guys that I had met, on, on my floor were going to a cookout for Campus Crusade for Christ. And they said, hey, you want to go? And I said, sure. So I go to this cookout, and I meet this guy, uh, by the name of Jake Moore, who was going to be a senior that year. And he and I just really connected and bonded. He, he was really into uh, his faith and music, and he wanted to be a missionary. I wanted to be a missionary. And so we, we were just kind of talking. And in the midst of our conversation, he tells me that he was in a fraternity. And it was like my mind was blown. I was like, wait, 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 wait. You can be in a fraternity and be a Christian, right? It was like my bubble was just bursting right there before me. And so I was like, okay, well, maybe I should at least go through Rush, and so I started to go through Rush, and I realized there were stereotypes within stereotypes, right, because there's the frat guy stereotype, which is, you know, frat guys are all about partying, and there's a lot of truth to that, but then when you start going through Rush, you see all the stereotypes associated with different houses. This, this was the house that was mostly the, the southern boys, here were the academics, here were the jocks, here were the nice guys, and you had all these stereotypes associated with these different houses. I just went to the one that Jake was a part of, because I like Jake, and I was like, I'm gonna, I'm gonna go here. And so now I'm in a fraternity, and within that first week, we are, we are instructed to get to know our other pledge brothers. And so they send us down to the basement and say, spend some time sharing your stories, telling folks why you're here, why you chose OU, why you chose SIGAP, And, and I didn't know anyone, so I just sat there, and I just wanted to listen for the most part. And, and it was fun. I mean, you, you heard some really funny stories, some really interesting backgrounds and things like that. But there was one guy in particular that I'm not, gonna, I'm not kidding, I was a little bit afraid of. Like when he finished talking, he, he looked like Jack Black, and he, his name was Jay Ramos, and, and he had this intensity that just filled the room. And he let it be known to all of us, very eloquently and colorfully, I might add, that he was there for one reason and one reason alone, and that was to have a good time. And, and when he finished speaking, I literally thought to myself, I need to stay away from him. This, this would be a very weird relationship. So he sits down, a few other people continue, and then it's finally the end of the night. Everyone's gone except me. And so I thought, well, I need to go ahead and make my introduction, so I stood up. And in the course of introducing myself, I don't really know what compelled me to do this, but I started talking more about my faith and just saying, you know, Jesus is really important to me. I love Jesus. I'm here to hopefully help you guys know what it means to follow Jesus too, so if you ever have any questions, like, let me know, and I'm just talking about my faith. I come to find out several months later that Jay was sitting there that night and when he heard me talk in this regard about my faith, he rolled his eyes and looked at his friend sitting next to him and was like, this guy's gonna kill my joy. Like, why is he here? And so we walked out of that introduction with two very polarizing impressions of each other with, with serious hesitations about ever spending time to one another, right? Now, the irony in that story is that Jay ended up being one of my best friends. I love Jay Ramos. And as I actually got to know him, what I discovered is a lot of those stereotypes that I had applied to him didn't really fit. I got to know his story, got to know what he had overcome, got to know more about his faith. And that was such a life-changing experience for me that really exemplifies what I experienced by being a part of a fraternity. See, coming out of high school, I had realized that I had a tendency to be somewhat judgmental, right, that I had a certain code or a standard or expectation that I would almost subconsciously apply to other people. And if people didn't fit that standard, I, I, would, I could be very easily negative towards them. In some ways, it, it would be destructive towards the relationship. And so I came into college knowing that, and that relationship with Jay Ramos became indicative of my experience in the fraternity. I've often said that my experience in that fraternity grew me more spiritually than almost any other organization I've ever been a part of, because there I learned what it meant to look beyond prejudices and stereotypes and see a person and just get to love the person and to be uh, changed by their stories and changed by those. It was a life-changing experience for me, one that I still continue to reflect upon even today. Now, I share that with you this morning because we've been talking about God's promises all year. Right, what, what we see in God's promises that are ultimately fulfilled in Christ Jesus, right? that the ultimate promise is forgiveness of sins and the opportunity to live forever with him. And our question throughout the year has been, what does it look like for us to stand boldly on those promises? If our lives truly revolved around a strong conviction that those things were true, how would our lives be different? And we've wrestled with that throughout the year. Now, most recently, we've begun to depress even more intentionally into the idea that these promises are for all people, They're not just reserved for us, they're for all people. So we need to figure out how do we take these truths and these hopes and these ideals and these words of invitation to our communities and to our world. And we've looked at that through so many different lenses and so many different perspectives. Today, we're gonna have to have a very serious and intentional conversation to recognize that if we're ever truly going to take these promises to all people, we have to learn what it means to go beyond our prejudices and our biases. We have to learn what does it mean to actually respond with a radical and unyielding love for the neighbor without hesitation. That's gonna be our subject of conversation today. So if you have your Bibles, turn to the book of Acts chapter 10. Now, we're gonna do something slightly different today. This is a large story and a very important story in the book of Acts, and so we're not gonna read it verse by verse. I'm gonna kind of retell it for the most part, and along the way, I'm gonna highlight certain verses that I wanna make sure that we pay attention to. So if you were with us last week, we looked at Saul's conversion, right? Saul, the the persecutor of the church, is all of a sudden now miraculously healed by Ananias and is becoming a believer of the faith. Now, as chapter nine continues, Saul wants to converse with the other believers. He wants to gather with them, and it tells us they were afraid to meet with him. Right, all the stereotypes all the, the prejudices associated with, with, with Saul prevented them from meeting with him. They were just like Ananias. They were, they were unsure if that was a good idea. And so there's this beautiful snippet in the scriptures that says, but Barnabas took him in. Right? Barnabas looked beyond the stereotypes, looked beyond the prejudices, and received him with grace and love and took him in and took him to the apostles. And we're told in chapter nine, the apostles were unafraid. Right? They, they were willing to meet with him, and I, and I think that's such a great juxtaposition that the, the believers were hesitant, but the, the apostles were not, and just this fearlessness that existed with the apostles, is so compelling. And so Saul's trying to get his footing, but there's several threats upon his life, and so ultimately he decides to go back to Tarsus, and that's his hometown, right? So he goes back, and he kind of fades from the story, right? He, he kind of fades into the background, for the next couple of chapters, and Peter reemerges as the central figure in the book of Acts. And what we see with Peter is that he's traveling around the countryside, he's continuing to preach, he's continuing to heal, and then we're told of this faithful disciple in Joppa named Tabitha, right, this God-fearing woman who unfortunately uh, grows ill and passes away. And so there's this grieving that's taking place in Joppa, and so they send for Peter, and Peter shows up, and they, they take him into Tabitha's room, and he kneels by her bed, and he prays, and he actually provides this miracle where God resurrects her back from death, right? It begins to sound just like some of the things that Jesus did in his ministry. And so news of this spreads all over Joppa, and they are amazed. And so they ask Peter to stay with them. And so so Peter is now in Joppa, staying with a man by the name of Simon the Tanner, okay? And so that's the setting for this story. Now, chapter 10 begins with a discussion of Cornelius. Cornelius was not a Jew. Right? This is What we've seen so far in the book of Acts is how this gospel has gone from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria, and now we're getting to, to break open the door of how it's going to the ends of the earth. And so we have this non-Jewish man by the name of Cornelius who is described as a God-fearer, who, who, one, who prays regularly, who gives to the poor. And so there's this vision that Cornelius has. Right In this this vision, this angel says, we've heard your prayers, we've seen your generosity, so send for a man by the name of Simon, who they call Peter. And so Cornelius comes out of this vision, and he gathers his his friends, his followers around him, and he sends three men. He says, y'all need to go find this man by the name of Simon Peter. And so he sends them off. Well, the next day, okay, so the next day, we were taken back to Joppa. And here's Peter, and it's around... Lunchtime, and he's hungry, and he goes up onto the roof to pray. And as he begins to pray, he falls into a trance and he has a vision as well. And this is a very interesting vision. The vision is described as a sheet that, that comes down from the sky, and on the sheet are all these different types of animals. Uh, and, and, and the way that this is described in the scriptures is basically if you have to look back at the Judaic history, Jews were told there are certain animals you can eat and certain animals you can't. Certain animals that are clean and are okay for eating, and certain ones that are impure and unclean that you need to avoid at all costs. So these animals, both clean and unclean, are laying on this sheet, all of them together. And Peter hears this voice it says, Peter, get up, kill, and eat. And that's a shock to Peter. He says, surely not, Lord. And, and it says, let no one call impure what God has made clean. Two different times this happened. So a total of three different times this vision takes place. And this is where I want us to read our first verse. So as Peter's coming out of this vision, look at chapter 10, starting verse 19. It says, while Peter was still thinking about the vision, the spirit said to him, Simon, three men are looking for you. So get up and go downstairs. Do not hesitate to go with them, for I have sent them. All right, so Peter gets up he goes down and he meets these men and they tell him about Cornelius and they say, you need to come with us. He wants to see you. And he says, okay, but it was too late for them to start their journey that night. So he invites them into their home and they stay the night. Then the next day, they make the journey to Caesarea and they arrive in Caesarea and Peter walks into the house and, and Cornelius falls at his feet. And Peter says, no, get up, I'm just a man. And they, they have this initial introduction. And then we get this really interesting statement from Peter that sure starts in verse 27, chapter 10. While talking with him, Peter went inside and found a large gathering of people, and he said to them, now you are well aware that it is against our law for a Jew to associate with or visit a Gentile, but God has shown me that I should not call anyone impure or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without raising any objection. May I ask you why you sent for me? That's a remarkable statement that we're going to get back to a little bit later, but, but Peter essentially says, you know, this is against the law for me. I should not be with you. I should not be associating with you. Why did you send for me? And so Cornelius explains the vision. He says, you know, I was, I was praying, and this is what uh, the Lord said, that, that I should send for you. You would come and you would tell me what you have to say. And it was just a wide open door to share the good news. And so Peter fearlessly once again runs through that door and shares the good news of Jesus Christ. Right? He explains who Jesus was, what he did, his life his ministry and he gets to that climactic moment where he says God has appointed Jesus to be judge over the living and the dead and that you can find forgiveness for sins in his name. Is that not the essence of the gospel church? We are here worshiping the one who God has appointed as judge over living and dead, Jesus Christ, and in him we all find forgiveness for our sins. That's the climatic invitation and Peter fearlessly declares it in front of Cornelius, his close friends and his family, and so as he's speaking, it tells us that the Holy Spirit comes upon Cornelius and all those gathered there, and and what we can best discern from the way this is described is it's almost like a little Pentecost now taking place in this home, right? Discussions of of tongues being understood. There, There was something obviously tangibly evident that allowed Peter and the people that he brought with him to see the Holy Spirit has come upon this home, and so in response, Peter looks and says, if God has given them the Holy Spirit, what is to stop us from baptizing them with water? And so they baptize the household. And this is the first story of a Gentile coming to faith. And the news of this reverberates across the church. So now look at chapter 11, verse one. It says, the apostles and the believers throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had re- received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcised believers, that's another way of saying the Jews that now believed in Christ, criticized him, right? And they said, you went into the house of an uncircumcised man or of a Gentile and ate with him, right? This is the law that Peter had referenced. This is not permissible for me to do. And so that's the first thing the believers ask, what, why did you go into his home? And so Peter gives an explanation. Now, this is, gives us insight to just how important the story is to Luke. Luke's the author of Acts. And he basically retells the story. So he's dedicating almost two full chapters to the story. The first in his own words, the second as Peter's retelling it. And so Peter begins to give this explanation and he gives all those justifications. I want to point out again to you why he went with them. 11 verse 12, the spirit told me to have no hesitation about going with them. So these six brothers also went with me and we entered the man's house. Why did I go in? The spirit told me to move without hesitation. So I go into the house and I share, and we begin to see the results of their response to the gospel. And here's how the story concludes, verse 15. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit came on them as he had come on us at the beginning. And then I remembered what the Lord had said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So if God gave them the same gift he gave us who believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I to think that I could stand in God's way? When they heard this, they had no further objections and praised God saying, so then, even to the Gentiles, God has granted repentance that leads to life. It is a phenomenal story. And there are so many different things that we could extract from it this morning. But there's one theme that I really want us to drive in on and it comes from this word hesitation, right? When I was reading through this story and I first saw it, in 1020, where it said the spirit prompted him to go without hesitation. Do not hesitate to go with these men. I was really inspired by just the immediacy with which Peter responded to God's prompting, right? God spoke and Peter was like, I'm, I'm gonna do this. And, and so that was kind of what I was focusing on initially was just this immediate response of obedience. But the more I looked into this word, there is a much richer meaning that really helps us understand the context of what this story really conveys. The word itself, it actually means to judge, to carefully evaluate, or to distinguish between two, to criticize. So the essence of this word really is more about judgment and distinguishing between things than it is just about immediacy. So then I kind of continued to look at this a little bit and said, well, where else is this word used? And you actually find it in this story. In fact, in 11.2, it tells us that when the believers criticized him, it's the same word, right? It's this idea of, of critical evaluation. And then if you just expand your scope a little bit further and you get to Acts chapter 15, you see the word again, but with a slightly different translation. You don't have to turn there, but in Acts 15, it's the same subject. It's this question of the gospel moving amongst the Gentiles. And now this time, Paul is the one giving the explanation. Paul's the one giving it a defense. And he says in verse nine, God did not discriminate between us and them, for he purified their hearts by faith. It's the same word, discriminate. And it's the way it's translated in James chapter two. In that letter, there's there's instructions to the church about how you treat the rich and the poor. And it's saying, don't show favoritism to the rich. Don't give them a preferred seat at the table. For when you do, aren't you discriminating amongst yourselves? That's the word. So when I started to look at this word, And this idea of hesitation, that became more of a powerful understanding of what was really being conveyed here. Think of it this way. What causes you to hesitate to show radical and unyielding love to a neighbor? Judgment. Prejudices. And that's what's really going on in this story. In fact, as I begin to look a little bit closer, John Stott says it really, really well. He says, you know, what we're being introduced to here is previously in Peter's narrative in the book of Acts, we've seen him respond so well to issues like poverty and healing. Now we get to see how he responds to racial and religious discrimination. That's what this story is really focusing in on. And so let me me make sure we understand the context, the chasm that existed between Jew and Gentile because it was significant. It was, it was drastic, okay? Now, the way that we can see this, uh, maybe most clearly in the story, is when Peter says, now, why did you sin for me, right? Because there are laws that, that I'm not supposed to associate or even visit with a Gentile. Now, when Peter uses the word Gentile in that statement, it's different than the word we're seeing used for Gentile in other parts of the story. Typically, what you see in the other parts of the story is the word ethnos or ethne, which more often than not just means nations, anyone that isn't a Jew, But the word Peter uses there, when he's talking to Cornelius, is more accurately translated as heathen, a word that means somebody that is viewed as being detestable to the Jews. So process that for a moment. What what Peter just said to Cornelius was, we have laws against me being here with you because you and your people are seen as detestable to us. That's what he just said. Can you imagine being in a situation conveying that and saying that, right? And so how did they get there? Let's be very clear. The Old Testament did not support that sort of alienation of the Gentiles, right? You can go throughout the Old Testament and see instructions as early as Abraham, the call of Abraham to go into a country and a land that I will show you and you will be a blessing to all Nations, You see it at prayers for the temple. You see it in the prophets that God is gonna use his people to be a light to the Gentiles. It was always God's plan to include them. But what had happened was that also in the Old Testament were all these verses and all these stories about how precious and how, how sacred and how pure God's people needed to be. And so they saw themselves as having to preserve their identity as being God's chosen people and everyone on the outside they had to abstain from any sort of association with because they were unclean, they were hostile, they were the heathen and so they became very inwardly focused, very nationalistic to the point that it developed these customs and these traditions and yes, even these laws that you never even entered their house. They saw them as dogs, less than human. That's the sort of religious and ethnic discrimination that's taking place in this story. And that's why the Spirit said, don't hesitate. Because he knew those would be all the thoughts, all the teachings that Peter was gonna have in his mind as soon as this interaction took place. Now it'd be easy for us to reflect on this story and just stop there, but the reality is, is for us to be true to this word, we need to stop and go, this is not just an ancient problem. Right? That, That we all carry certain prejudices and biases that cause us to hesitate and prevent us from actually moving with a radical and unyielding love for the neighbor. And so I want us to consider just some of those prejudices that we often have to combat against and be mindful of. Let's start with economic prejudices. How we view the rich and the poor. Let me give you a scenario. Let's say you're driving down the street and you come up to an intersection and you see somebody standing on the corner. They look unkept, they look disheveled, they look homeless, whatever description you wanna give them, and they're holding a sign that says, hungry. What are your first thoughts? If you're like me, typically my first thought is, is this person addicted to drugs and alcohol? And if I give anything to them, is that going to actually be used on food or the next beer or the next hit that they want? Should I really give to this? Am I just going to contribute to this problem of addiction or am I actually going to help their need. What, what should I do? And it's not long, just a matter of seconds before I hesitate. And I put all those ideas in my mind, and I can justify very quickly to not give anything. And so what do I do? I keep my head down and I look forward and I don't make eye contact. Interestingly enough, as a side note, when I was volunteering at True Worth in the uh, day shelter down in town Fort Worth not too long ago, I was reading this article that talked about one of the hardest things for people to have gone through homelessness to overcome is the fact that very few people have ever made eye contact with them when they see them on the street. How dehumanizing that becomes and how deflating that becomes to their sense of worth, right? And so even if we don't give, just just refusing to acknowledge that they're there, right? And, And what's the reality? Now, even if some of those things are true, the reality is I don't know that person's name. I don't know their story, And so I'm hesitating based on prejudices and preconceived ideas. And we do this not just with a person on the street, but with poverty a lot of times, don't we? I mean, again, I know I have. You start thinking about larger systemic issues of poverty, uh, government assistance, low-income housing, school vouchers, all these different issues that come up, and and we have these preconceived ideas. In fact, there was a study that was done by the Washington Post and the Kaiser Family Foundation back in 2017, and they surveyed around 2,000 adults that, that ultimately came away with these results that said Christians are much more likely to say that someone's poverty is a result of their own lack of effort rather than circumstances that were beyond their control. And I know I've been there. How many times I've looked at those situations, I thought, you know, if, if, they, if they would just work harder, then they could get out of this situation without knowing names, without knowing stories, without really knowing what they face. It's amazing how we can just have these preconceived notions. And it works both ways, right? We, we do it towards the wealthy too, don't we? Oh, they're overpaid. They're materialistic. They're greedy. Their inheritance was probably just given to them and now they're probably selfish with some of it to the detriment of others. And, and we have this income inequality and it creates resentment and walls and barriers between the two. And so we hesitate and, and hesitate towards our demonstration of radical and unyielding love to one another. Or maybe we, we do show favoritism, especially in the church, right? We see somebody that's wealthy and we think, well, man, how they could impact this budget. How they could help with our facilities. And so we give them a privileged seat at the table. Here, chair of this committee, tell us, what do you think? And it's all prejudices, it's all discrimination. It's not related to, or not confined just to economics. Think about gender Right, we start looking at men, we look at women. We say, here are your roles, here are your roles. Here's your responsibilities and your responsibilities. And we, we get these, these definitions and these expectations of what each should do. And we do it in the workplace, we do it in the home, we do it in the church. And it hesitates, creates a hesitation in our ability to truly love one another. We do this across generations. We look at an older generation, we say, you're disconnected, you don't understand what's relevant, you don't understand today's issues. We look at younger generations and we say, you're entitled You're not willing to work hard. Everything's been handed to you. And we have these walls that once again emerge. Right, we do this with religion. September 11th, 2001, changed the way the majority of us view Muslims. And so now when we meet somebody that is Muslim, there's typically some sort of hesitation about their view on violence, their view on America, their view on Christians. We don't know their names always, we don't know their stories, but we have those hesitations. We do this uh, with, with uh, our national pride, right? We think about what it means to be Americans, and we too can evoke these ethnocentric mentalities, and we start looking at issues like immigration, and we paint with a broad brush, and we say, well, anybody that's coming over here illegally, well, clearly they're coming with drugs, they're coming with crime, they're coming to take our jobs, which is what will lead a campus of students to gather together in Charlottesville and chant, you won't replace us. Right? We, we have all those issues. We have divisions politically. I could go on and on, but it would be irresponsible of me to at least not stop and address one that is probably the most concerning in our country, which would be prejudices related to race and ethnicity. It continues to plague our country and our history and our current practice. There is a survey that was done by Pew Research just as recently as April, and some of those findings related to race relations in America have discovered or or confirmed once again that the majority of Americans, white, Hispanic, African-American, you name it, would say that the race relations in our country are bad and getting worse. The majority of Americans, regardless of an ethnicity, would say white people have an advantage and a privilege that others don't. The majority of races and ethnicities would say that white people are treated more favorably in the eyes of the criminal justice system than African-Americans. There's so many different statistics and stories that we could point to. It's not hard for us to look within our own recent current events. You just talk about the names Amber Geiger and Botham Jean. Or let's talk about a Tatiana Jefferson and the tensions that fill our community as soon as you hear those names mentioned in those stories. And we're not immune to it in the church. Right? This is not some sacred space. If you have been paying attention to the news at all, there's a story out of Florida Not too long ago, just a few weeks ago, where they had invited a man by the name of Marcus Hayes, an African-American man, to come and be their pastor. He needed an 85% approval vote. He got 81%. And the church staff had to send out a letter of apologizing to the rest of the congregation because there was an active campaign built upon racial prejudices to get no votes and to prevent him from coming. So we're not immune to this within the body of Christ. Think about all the things that that exist in our world and in our lives, whether it be economic, whether it be gender, age, religion, you name it, that cause us to hesitate before we move with a radical and unyielding love for the neighbor. And what happens? What, What ensnares us to this? Well, a couple of things. A lot of times we paint broadly and we develop categories of people, right? All white people think this. All black people think this. All Hispanic people think this. All Democrats think this. All Republicans think this. All old people. We just give categories of people and we paint broadly. And we don't actually get to know each other's stories and and their histories and what they've gone through. And it creates walls of division. It's not radical love. Or a lot of times we think too narrowly. And we create only an individual uh, individualized form of accountability. Well, I give to the person begging on the street. Now, I, I, I'm not racist. I'm not sexist. So I must be good. And if we can absolve ourselves of any blame, then that's usually where we stop the conversation. And we miss the opportunity to have the much more necessary and much harder conversation about not just our own personal response, but systemic and institutional perpetrators of prejudice. Think about Peter. Peter was taught this. It's not like they introduced it and he had a chance to think critically, well should we, should we not enter their home? And this was what he grew up hearing. Laws were in place keeping him out of homes of Gentiles. It is, it is one thing for us to consider our own personal response. It's a whole nother to think about it institutionally. There is an article that came out in The Athletic, not, or not The Athletic, that's a sportsman, sorry. The Atlantic. And it hit on this, and this was really pointed. It was, it was directed towards Southern Baptists. It said, it's one thing to aim to purge a man's heart of ill will towards his black or white brothers in Christ. It's quite another to try to rectify the after effects of 250 years of slavery and the decades of Jim Crow that followed. For Southern Baptists, it's ironic to embrace the former but ignore the latter for a simple reason, their denomination helped define the history of American racism. I'll be honest, that's a much harder conversation to have and one that I feel very ill-equipped to know how to navigate, but I know it's necessary. It's not enough for us just to go, well, here's my personal response. We have to look out and see systemic issues that are contributing to poverty, contributing to sexism, to racism, and all these different issues that create these barriers in these walls. And a lot of times we just grow silent, which is the other problem, right? We, we grow silent because we think, well, it's not a big deal and I don't wanna create controversy and so I'm just gonna leave it alone. And we don't challenge the status quo. Do you understand how courageous it was for Peter to challenge the status quo by going to this man's house? How remarkable that was, right? Or maybe we're afraid to say anything because of the backlash that might happen and so we grow silent. You can't choose silence, that creates walls, it means we're moving with hesitation. The call and the emphasis of this story that makes it so unbelievably remarkable is that God is demonstrating here, he says, I have no external criteria. I I, I don't make distinctions in my kingdom and neither should you. And that was revolutionary. And that's what Peter is responding to. And so there are some incredibly helpful lessons that we see in this story. As, as, as exhaustive as we should be on this subject, let me just hit on a few takeaways today. Here are some things that we see that Peter demonstrates for us. Number one, he responds in, in uh, responses to the spirit, right? It's spirit-guided, it's spirit-led. It's the spirit that says, you need to go with them without hesitation. And what that teaches us is that a lot of times when God calls us to move, he's gonna call us into uh, places that are going to challenge our own prejudices and biases. He's going to send us to new nations. He's going to send us to new homes and to new people. That's where he typically sends us. And when he sends us, it's not just for the benefit of the person we're seating. Sometimes it's for our own benefit as well. Yes, God wanted Cornelius saved, but he also wanted the walls of racial and religious prejudicism destroyed in Peter's heart. And so we have to be in step with the Spirit. We have to listen to where God leads us, recognizing a lot of times he might lead us to people we never thought we would ever associate with. And not only that, we have to see the authority of the Scripture that is maintained through this narrative. This is a very important piece to not lose sight of. It would be easy for us to read the story and think, well, well, Peter had a vision and he had an experience, and so that became the new standard, right, that that they just did away with the Old Testament because Peter had a vision, and look at how Cornelius responded. That's not at all what happened. What this did was created a fresh reading of the scripture. Okay? In fact, if you just turned to chapter 13, you'd see quotes of Amos, you'd see quotes of Isaiah, you'd see through the rest of the New Testament these people discovering all those verses I referenced earlier, that God's plan from the very beginning was to take his saving word to the nations. And so it was a fresh reading of scripture, but scripture was still authoritative. It's very easy in the name of tolerance to set aside truth. It's very easy to say, you know what? Believe what you wanna believe and not bring in the hope of the gospel with it. They never set aside the authority of God's word. But equally important for us is to recognize it's easy to veer off of the path that God's word sets for us and develop traditions and develop customs that are not biblically guided. And through the Spirit's prompting, we need to constantly have a fresh reading of scripture. The other thing that we see here is that Peter was willing to take risks. Right, I just said he he risked challenging the status quo. He risked going with men he didn't know into a place that was typically forbidden. He risked speaking the gospel. Time and time again, we see whether it's people that could imprison him, people that are from a totally different culture and walk of life, he never chooses silence. He always says, this is the message. God has appointed Jesus Christ to be judge over living and the dead. He has given you an opportunity for repentance and forgiveness of sins. Peter never chooses silence, and he always shares the message. He didn't know how Cornelius was going to respond. He didn't know if it was going to be offensive. He didn't know if it was going to be well-received or or how their religious views were going to conflict, but he did not choose silence. He took the risk to share. He also took the risk to step into things that were beyond their customs and their traditions, to step into new barriers, into new areas and, and places that typically he would not go. And so we see all this boldness from Peter And he was willing to risk. But here, to me, is the main takeaway for us today. What I love about this story is where all these walls and all these prejudices come crumbling down. It takes place in the intimate setting of a home amongst family and friends. I love that. We live in a world that is filled with resolutions and statements Here's what I think about this issue. Here's how I'm gonna vote on this issue. But you know where these prejudices and these preconceived ideas came crumbling down? It was inside someone's home. That's where God led him. The risk was not some new revelation. The risk was a new relationship in an intimate setting. And so part of what we need to think is it's easy for us to talk about this subject and go, well, I believe the God or, or, or the promises of God are for all people. I believe the gospel is for everyone. We can say that. When was the last time we had a Muslim in our home or we were in theirs? When was the last time we broke bread with somebody of a different race and ethnicity? What do those friendships look like in our lives? Are we truly insulated? Or are we willing to transgress into boundaries and communities that teach us to know people's stories and see these walls of prejudices come crumbling down. those things take place not on social media not in some act of resolution or statement but in the intimate spaces of someone's home where you can look them eye to eye and hear their story and show them a radical and unyielding love from Jesus Christ and so that's how we need to respond church as individuals and as a community of faith right one of my favorite expressions of this comes from Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus Right, He's talking about this, and he says that what we discover is that this wall of hostility that used to stand between Jew and Gentile has been broken in Jesus Christ. One of the most powerful expressions of the gospel is when we see people that should not typically associate with each other, that don't typically associate with each other because of what society says, coming together in love and praise and fellowship because of Jesus Christ. That's the power of the gospel. Those walls of hostility have been broken. And so that's the response that we need to seek in our own lives, both individually and as a church. And can I tell you, I'm encouraged by the work that we've done. I'm encouraged by a church that has ministries in different areas and neighborhoods and relationships that are forming, but can I tell you, the work is not complete. There's still much more progress that needs to be done and we need to take it seriously because this is what allows us to exalt not our name and not some program but exalt the gospel of Jesus Christ and so I want you to reflect personally and think what is it that is causing any sort of hesitation within me to show radical and unyielding love to another and as you begin to sense those things pray that those walls come crumbling down that you'd be in step with the Spirit, that you would move with the authority of God's Word, that you would take risk and you would enter into intimate spaces with somebody you would have thought, I never would have associated with this person. Let's do this, church. Let's move with a radical and unyielding love for the neighbor without hesitation. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we love you so much. God, we we love you because we know that the love you have called us to to demonstrate to others is one that you have fully revealed in Christ and that we have been recipients of a grace and a mercy that we didn't deserve. God, that it has opened our eyes to what it means to truly love the other. And so, God, I would just pray that if there is anything within uh, this church or within anyone that's gathered here today, God, that we hold as prejudices or stereotypes or barriers, God, that causes hesitation in our lives to demonstrate the love that you've called us to. God, we pray that those walls would be destroyed today through the name of Jesus Christ. God, that as a church family and as individuals, we would be able to go and to move without hesitation in a way that brings you glory, that brings you honor, and points people to the hope that we have in Christ Jesus. God, our heart's desire is to see every tongue every tribe, every nation, regardless of the color of their skin, regardless of their economic status, regardless of their stories, their histories, but to see every tongue, every tribe, every nation come to worship the risen king. And so may we be your hands, your feet, and your words of love and grace as you send us out. Help us to move, Father, without hesitation. In Jesus' precious and holy name we pray. Amen. Amen.